The Endgame of Pope Francis, a conference by Christopher Ferrara, given on November 10, 2018, at the Fatima Center's Army of Advocates Conference in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, themed on borrowed time, defending Catholic teaching on marriage and the family. Kevin mentioned the Ask Father feature of this conference, and I would caution you that uh, you, if you're going to ask Father Relia a question, be sure you want to do that because he will not tell you what you want to hear. <laughs> and the church that tells us what we want to hear is pretty much the subject of this talk. The church that says what itching ears would like the church to say, the church that is willing to compromise with the spirit of the age, which is the subject of this talk, The End Game of Francis, which is precisely, as it would appear, an attempt to accommodate the church to the world instead of the other way around, which is the actual mission of the church. And we're looking at what I would call the end game of Francis. Now, what is this end game? He tells us himself in his unprecedented personal manifesto Evangelii Gaudium, specifically in paragraph 27, and I quote, I dream of a missionary option, that is, a missionary impulse capable of transforming everything so that the church's customs, ways of doing things, times and schedules, language and structures can be suitably channeled for the evangelization of today's world notice that, today's world, rather than for her self-preservation. I could probably devote the entire talk just to that sentence. Notice the curious, telling, and rather devastating opposition internally in that phrase between what Francis wants and the church's self-preservation, as if the two things could be opposed. And apparently in his mind, they are. He thinks the church has to be changed in such a way that would threaten her self-preservation, but somehow advance what he sees to be the true mission of the church. We've never had a pope like this, as bad as things have been in the past 50 years, not even during the tumultuous reigns of John Paul II and Paul VI, whom I like to refer to as the great destroyer, have we seen anything of this magnitude. The hubris is astounding, and yet this is exactly what he wants to do. Another aspect of this endgame is what has happened with the Synod on the family. For the first time in 2,000 years, the church, in an official document, later declared to be, in its application, authentic magisterium, has countenanced the idea of situation ethics. In Amoris Laetitia, the post-synodal apostolic exhortation following the first sham synod on the family, we read about the idea that the negative precepts of the natural law, thou shalt not, which admit of no exceptions whatsoever, actually do have exceptions. They become in this document an objective ideal from which departures are morally permissible. And even what God himself is asking, to quote the document, because of, and I quote, complex situations, end quote, the complexities of life, End quote. The complexity of various situations, end quote. 
the complex mixture of light and shadows, quote-unquote, in each person. Complex problems, situations which are very complex, and the concrete complexity of one's limits. The word concrete is very important here because, you see, morality doesn't always apply in concrete situations. That's just another way of saying what we now have in the church is situation ethics. And it involves the complexity of one's situation. Now, whose life is simple? If we're going to talk about complex situations, I'll tell you whose life is simple. The one who follows the sixth commandment and does not commit adultery has a very simple life. He doesn't have to worry about divorce, the consequences of adultery to himself and to his family. And this is what our Lord says. My burden is easy and my yoke is light. If you live according to his commandments, your life is as simple and as peaceful as it can be in this very disturbing place we call a veil of tears in our prayers. The person who follows the law of God and shows by doing so that he loves God has a simple life. Whose life then is complex? Well, it becomes more and more complex as you pile up more and more violations of the moral law. So curiously enough, the complex situations which involve departures from the moral law that are permissible, according to Amoris Laetitia, is created by the very fact of disobedience to the moral law. So it's a kind of a self-fulfilling justification for a departure from exceptionless precepts of the natural law. We have never seen anything like this in the history of the church. And we have here a stunning admission in, in this regard by Father Thomas Rosica the English-language attaché of the Vatican Press Office. And he says, quite simply, and I quote, Pope Francis breaks Catholic traditions whenever he wants because he is, quote, free from disordered attachments, quoting Bergoglio's own phrase. Our church, says Rosica, has indeed entered a new phase with the advent of this first Jesuit pope. It is openly ruled by an individual rather than by the authority of Scripture alone, or even its own dictates of tradition, plus Scripture, end quote. So the end game of Francis is to rule the church and to remake the church in his image, breaking whatever traditions he pleases. This is the end game of Jorge Mario Bergoglio. Now, I have to hasten to add that this is the end of a 50-year process. It didn't begin with him but it's reaching its terminal phase with him. And how have we reached this terminal phase? Well, amazingly enough, we've reached it without any formal change in the church's doctrines and dogmas, all of which can still be found in the catechisms and other official documents. We've reached it through the multiplication of what I call doctrinoids, or in another article I've written, viruses in the body of Christ. These are seemingly trivial notions that are not doctrinal, but have profound doctrinal effects. We think of the obvious ones, ecumenism, dialogue, interreligious dialogue, liturgical enculturation, and so forth. These new notions are then implemented by new structures in the church, the various Vatican dicasteries, the Episcopal conferences, ecumenical offices, liturgical offices. An entire bureaucracy has flourished and spread throughout the church, to promulgate these new notions, which are part of what Thomas Pink has called an official theology of the past 50 years. That is not the actual theology of the church, but which in its application subverts 
practically everything we believe in practice. And the notions involved have no actual doctrinal content, which is why I call them viruses. They're not really living things like a virus. They need a living thing to hijack the machinery of so that they can make copies of themselves. And these things have proliferated like viruses throughout the church. Now, with Pope Bergoglio, we have a whole new slew of novelties. We have, first of all, discernment. Next, accompaniment. Then, of course, his favorite, the God of Surprises. And another one called the Law of Gradualness. Now, what is discernment? Discernment is code for think it over. When you come to a moral precept that forbids a certain action and you're violating that precept, as are people in second marriages, think it over while you continue to violate it and discern what your behavior is all about. So this involves where the implementation of Amoris Laetitia is concerned, a process of being allowed to discern in your adulterous second marriages while you receive Holy Communion that you should not be receiving Holy Communion. This is the process involved in discernment. Then there is accompaniment. What is accompaniment? Accompaniment is coddling and condoning. It's an attempt to disguise the justification for sin, the condemnation of sin, the toleration of sin, as some sort of exercise of charity. But accompanying someone is simply walking along with him while he paves his own road to hell. The God of surprises is, as we all know, what Francis wants. Surprise! The death penalty is inadmissible. It's always immoral, contrary to 2,000 years of church teaching, emanating from the revelation of Christ himself and St. Paul. The God of Surprises tells us that the death penalty is now to be considered intrinsically immoral. But, of course, adultery in the form of a second marriage is no longer to be considered intrinsically immoral. The God of Surprises has a lot of tricks up his sleeve, by which I mean Francis. What is the mechanism for implementing the novelties that Francis has added to the slew of novelties that have afflicted the church over the past 50 years? Of course, it's the Synod. The Synod was invented by Paul VI. There have been local synods, but the universal synod is a creature of the novelty machine that was the pontificate of Paul VI. He decided there would be a permanent universal synod centered in Rome that would meet periodically to discuss various issues as if it were some sort of parliament. But Francis has taken the synodal mechanism to a new level. And I'm speaking, of course, of the recent document, Episcopalis Communio. In Episcopalis Communio, as the theologian philosopher Peter Kwasniewski has put it, we see that there is not even an attempt anymore at hiding the papal strategy from manipulating its outcome. Now it is in broad daylight. On September 17th, Pope Francis released a new document, meaning Episcopalius Communio, governing the structure of the Synod of Bishops, which turns the Synod into a permanent body, somewhat like a parliamentary form of government, and most worrisomely amplifies the magisterial force of the final document produced by a synod. In other words, he concludes, the process by which synodal progressivism will be able to modernize Catholic dogma and morals has been accelerated. 
one wonders if Pope Francis is worried about how many years he's got left and wants to make sure that he changes as much as he can as quickly as possible. Now, Francis admits that the Synod is not part of the divine constitution of the church, that it's a human institution. And so in Episcopalius Communio, he says, and I quote, like every human institution, it could be further improved with the passage of time. And the improvement he has in mind is what Episcopalius Communio presents as a consultation with the people of God, meaning, of course, a consultation with Francis. Now, this is a consultation that his collaborators have already prepared by way of drafting synodal documents and arranging the outcome of the synod before it even begins. And the process outlined in Episcopalius Communio is part of the end game. It is, in fact, the mechanism by which the end game will be implemented. The end game being the implementation of Francis's vision to change essentially everything in the church, according to his vision of what the church should be. I won't bore you with a passage-by-passage quotation. Let me summarize some of the key points. The document says that, and I quote, the bishop is a disciple when knowing that the spirit has been bestowed upon every baptized person, he listens to the voice of Christ speaking through the entire people of God, making it infallible in credendo. Now, the whole body of the faithful down through the centuries professing what it has been taught by the magisterium, is in fact infallible in the sense that it holds fast to what has been handed down to it by the teaching church. And this is exactly what we saw during the Arian crisis, when, as Cardinal Newman notes, the faithful did a better job of honoring their baptismal vows than most of the hierarchy, which either subscribed to the Arian heresy or silently tolerated its spread throughout the church. That's what the church means by the infallibility of the body of the faithful. That certainly isn't what Francis and his collaborators mean. What they mean is listening to the people in their demands today. Remember, I quoted earlier about the idea of a world that is characterized as today's world. Well, every day we have today's world. But what we're talking about when we talk about the infallibility of the the body of the faithful, the infallibility in credendo is what the church has always taught and what the faithful have always believed. The document goes on to say that the universal body made up of the faithful whom the Holy One has anointed is incapable of erring in belief. This is a property which belongs to the people as a whole, end quote. goes on to say that a bishop who lives among the faithful has his ears open to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a foray into outright Gnosticism. We listen to what the Spirit is saying today through the voice of the people. We listen to what the people want. We don't instruct the people in the faith who preserve the faith and carry it down through the centuries, transmitting it to their children for generation after generation. No, we listen to what they're saying today, not what they've always said and believed based upon what the church has always said and believed. And then the document goes on to say that the bishops must listen to the voice of the sheep. Bah! We would like our second marriages to be validated. This is what the sheep are demanding. Also, through these diocesan institutions, whose task it is to advise the bishop, promoting a loyal and constructive dialogue. In the same vein, it says, the Synod of Bishops must increasingly become 
a privileged instrument for listening to the people of God. For the Synod Fathers, we ask the Holy Spirit, first of all, the gift of listening, to listen to God, that with him we may hear the cry of the people, to listen to the people until breathing in the desire to which God calls us. Another quote, that's a real gem, although structurally it is essentially configured as an Episcopal body, meaning the Synod, this does not mean that the Synod exists separately from the rest of the faithful. On the contrary, it is a suitable instrument to give voice to the entire people of God. The history of the church bears ample witness to the importance of consultation for ascertaining the views of the bishops and the faithful in matters pertaining to the good of the church. Well, that's simply a lie. The church has not convoked assemblies of the faithful to hear from them what they would like in terms of doctrine and practice. There have been local synods, some of which were gravely erroneous, and ecumenical synods, in other words, ecumenical councils in which the bishops in documents approved by the Pope, have affirmed and developed and passed on intact what the Church has always taught and believed. Never have we had consultation sessions of a formal sort where we listen to the voice of the people. So we have a blatant attempt to democratize doctrine, but as I will show you, it really has nothing to do with the voice of the people. Now, Francis goes on to say, having first told us at the Synod, is a human institution, which indeed it is, that in fact it is not a human institution. Typical post-conciliar double talk. You affirm what you deny and deny what you affirm. So we read in Episcopalius Communio that the synod will emerge as a constitutive element of the church. And here is how this new constitutive element of the church will work. He lays it all out for us, the new democratization of the church by which groups of bishops meeting in Rome, a small fraction of the entire episcopate of the world, will listen to the people of God, meaning Francis and the synod manipulators, and come up with documents which purport to be the result of this listening. And the listening, of course, will be passed off as the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through the people of God. Here's how the process proceeds, according to Episcopalis Communio. First, you have the consultation of the people of God in the particular churches. What is this consultation? Submit suggestions on the Internet. The Internet. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry is permitted to submit his ideas through the Internet. You don't even know if these people are certified as Catholics. At the diocesan level, they're simply opening up websites and people are submitting suggestions. And the way this is opened up is that the document Episcopalis Communio says, we consult the people to God by methods that they, the bishops, deem appropriate, including Internet surveys and Facebook postings. In the immortal words of Archbishop Lefebvre when he saw the new Mass for the first time, is this for real? This is what we're being told is going to be the new method of listening to the people of God. Second, the faithful, individually or in association with others, submit their contributions directly to the Synod, meaning demands for liberalization of the church and demands for conservation of what the church has handed down or a restoration where it has been lost will be systematically excluded, as we see with the protest of young people who made Facebook submissions and other Internet submissions and attended the youth meeting, but whose voices were completely excluded from the process. 
as they themselves protested. They had to issue an alternative document protesting the way the Synod was already being manipulated. Third, the Synod Fathers stacked with enough Bergolian partisans to assure adoption of whatever he wants, vote on a final document. The document is already written by Bergoglio's collaborators, which is then, quote, presented to the Roman pontiff who decides on its publication, and of course the publication is a foregone conclusion. Fourth, once it is rubber-stamped by Bergoglio, quote, the final document participates in the ordinary magisterium of the successor of Peter. Fifth, once he has rubber-stamped the final document, already written before the Synod concluded, and then voted on by a Synodal Assembly stacked with people sufficient to assure the two-thirds majority that Francis wants, once it's rubber-stamped, quote, the diocesan or eparchial bishops see to the reception and implementation, along with the general secretariat of the synod, which can issue documents regarding implementation. So in other words, the synodal structure is now being followed by an implementation phase, and there will be a synodal secretariat and diocesan apparatuses for the implementation of whatever the people of God have said, speaking as the voice of the Spirit, during the Synod. Sixth, there will also be a commission for implementation, consisting of experts, God save us from the experts, that are assigned this task of implementation. Because, of course, by experts we mean the ones that Bergoglio handpicks and a retinue of ecclesial bureaucrats that will assist him. So it doesn't take a lawyer to see what's going on here. Episcopalius Communio establishes a complete framework for the imposition of the will of one man. Remember what Father Rosica said. The man who was ruling the church now for the first time as an individual, without regard to the authority of Scripture, or the church's dictates of tradition and Scripture, so that the will of this one man can be imposed under the guise of something that mimics an ecumenical council and will be treated as such. This entire charade is a disguise for what Bergoglio wanted from the beginning, passed off as the working of the spirit in the new synodal church. And in the document Episcopalius Communio, Francis says specifically that this new synodal church will emerge from the workings of the synodal mechanism he has constructed and already put into operation. He is changing, or hopes to change, the very nature of the Catholic Church in its hierarchical activity. He wants to create, in place of what we have had for 2,000 years, a synodal church emanating decisions from Rome, arrived at on the basis of a final document, he and his collaborators write, which is rubber-stamped by a few bishops meeting in Rome before they go out for pasta that evening. This is how he intends to remake the church in his image, to change everything, as I said at, at the outset of my talk. The synodal church is the Trojan horse in the city of God by which the end game of this pontificate will be played out. It is nothing but a disguise for what Francis wants. It is the fulfillment of his dream in which he breaks any tradition he wants, to allude again to Father Rosica, because he is not attached in any disordered way to what the church has always believed, 
and rules the church as an individual. We saw this, of course, already in the Synod of 2014-2015, which was manipulated from start to finish to achieve the preordained result. The preordained result was that people living in second marriages, who, as John Paul II said, are living in a condition of public and permanent adultery, in which, said John Paul II's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the reception of Holy Communion is intrinsically impossible, will now be allowed to receive Holy Communion. He began talking about this desired outcome almost from the moment of his election. Remember his first Orbi et Orbi address when he praised Cardinal Casper's book. From that moment forward, he relentlessly pursued the agenda of admitting public adulterers to Holy Communion. When he didn't get what he wanted in that regard from the Synod Fathers during the first phase, the final relatio included indications to that effect. It didn't pass by the required two-thirds majority. He included it anyway in the proceedings for 2015. And ultimately, of course, he implemented it through Amoris Laetitia and through a rescript, which is now in the AAS, stating that his interpretation of Amoris Laetitia, which is the only one that matters, permitting in certain cases the reception of Holy Communion by public adulterers is part of the authentic magisterium. He pursued this unerringly from the moment of his election, and the Synod was merely a cover for what he wanted from the beginning, and he had the audacity to tell us, to tell the whole church, that this was the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking. Does anyone take that seriously? He knows it's a lie. He knows it's nonsense, that the Holy Ghost had nothing to do with this, but this is what we're expected to believe. And then we come to this synod being conducted under the auspices of Episcopalis Communio. And we read in the very beginning, and I find this highly amusing, and I'll tell you why. The document's only available in Italian, so, so bear with me. It says that my Holy Spirit will pour out on everyone, quoting scripture. Your children will prophesy. Your young will have visions. And your old men will have dreams. Quoting Acts 2.17. And this is the experience that we have had in this synod. Walking together and allowing ourselves to listen to the voice of the Spirit. He has surprised us with the riches of his gifts and has filled us with courage and with the force to bring to the world hope. Now, the citation to Acts 2.17 is very interesting because it seems to me that the people who run the Vatican don't really read Scripture when they cite from it. It seems someone is using a search engine looking for something about people dreaming and having visions and plugging it into the synodal document. Because what actually this document refers to when it cites that passage of Scripture is what Peter said on Pentecost Sunday in the second chapter of Acts. He has gone out to preach to the Jews who were assembled in the thousands, and he alludes to the prophecy of Joel. And I quote from the prophecy to which Peter alludes. This is what he says to the Jews that he is addressing immediately after Pentecost Sunday. And it shall come to pass in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. That's what they put into the synodal document. Unfortunately, they didn't tell you the rest of the story. And upon my servants indeed and upon my handmaids, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, 
and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and manifest day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as you also know. This same being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you, by the hands of wicked men, have crucified and slain. So they pluck in isolation a statement about young people dreaming without telling you that Peter is talking about the last days, the end times. Is this a joke? Do they think that no one will check their scriptural references? Are they so slapdash that they would toss in a reference like this without realizing the implications? That what they're really talking about is an apocalyptic scenario. And the reason that the younger dreaming dreams is that our Lord is about to come. And this is the ingathering of the Jews. He's exciting in them spiritual insights that will bring them into the church in the last days before God ends it all. And here is the synod suggesting that the young people involved in this, and the traditional-minded ones were completely excluded, were dreaming dreams and having visions. Utter nonsense. Now, what was the point of this synod? Well, we know what the point of the synod was. The point of the synod was to advance to the next phase of the demolition of the church's teaching on the negative precept of the Sixth Commandment. And this would take the form of an acknowledgement and acceptance of the idea that there exists a category of people called LGBT. We saw this in the uh, working document for the Synod, the Instrumentum Laboris, and we know that uh, Cardinal Baldessari falsely claimed that the Instrumentum Laboris, which contains a reference to LGBT youth who prefer to form homosexual couples as opposed to heterosexual couples, claimed that reference came from the final report of the meeting of youth before the Synod, doesn't appear there. It was inserted. It wasn't inserted by the Synod Fathers. It was inserted by the collaborators who worked with Francis to rig the Synod. So the idea was to get the notion of an LGBT constituency in the church into the official magisterium, because as I've just shown you, with Episcopalius Communio, the documents of these synods will be rubber-stamped and made part of the magisterium, so-called, of Peter. So the idea was get the term into the synod document, and then we will have, as part of the official magisterium, the recognition that there are people whose very identity is determined by a sexual perversion, which means, of course, that it can't be a sexual perversion. This is part of their identity, and human identity is something given by God. So once we establish that there are LGBT people whose identity has been conferred upon him by God himself, on what ground does the church stand to reprobate homosexual conduct on any basis other than heterosexual conduct? It becomes accepted as a normal variant of sexual activity. Now, Bishop Gracias, who was a member of the drafting commission, made a rather stunning revelation about this final document of the Synod. He said that references to sexual orientation 
in paragraph 150, and I'll get to that in a moment, references to discernment and references to the process of synodality itself were never discussed by the synodal fathers. They were inserted into the final document by whom he does not know. He's on the drafting commission. He said, oh, it could have been Baldessari, somebody that surrounds Francis. I don't know who put it in there, but we certainly didn't discuss it. And he says we didn't discuss in particular the reference to sexual orientation. And this is particularly devious because the reference to sexual orientation appears in paragraph 150 of the synodal document. And that paragraph refers to the fact that the CDF issued a document regarding sexual orientation. I believe it was in 1998. Paragraph 150 says, it would be reductive to define identity solely on the basis of sexual orientation, citing to the document of the CDF back in 1998, which was, was specifically approved by John Paul II. Of course, they're giving us another lying citation. Because when you go to the document of the CDF, the document of the CDF doesn't say that it would be reductive to identify someone solely on the basis of sexual orientation. It says that it would be impermissible to identify anyone in any way on the basis of sexual orientation. We don't speak of heterosexual people or homosexual people in the church, said the CDF under John Paul II, because these elements of human activity are not human identity. What is human identity is that we are all children of God, said the CDF, made children by baptism. There is to be no reference to sexual orientation. Solely is is not the word the CDF used, but no reference at all in the question of what human identity consists of. And it consists of our status as creatures of God and as adopted children of God by virtue of baptism. And yet they smuggled into the document the idea of sexual orientation as something to be considered as part of the question of human identity. And that's a reference to paragraph 150 of the document. At the very beginning of the final document, we see that although they weren't able to get LGBT as a concept smuggled into the final document, there was fierce opposition from the African bishops. They did a lawyer's trick. And the lawyer's trick is you incorporate it by reference. You refer to another document, and you say that document is part of this document. We couldn't get it in explicitly, but we'll refer to it. And here is what it says in paragraph 3. Again, this is only available in, in Italian, so bear with me. It is important to clarify the relation between the instrumentum laboris and the final document. The first is the frame of reference, the Unitarian synthetic frame of reference, which resulted from two years of listening. The second is the fruit of discernment. It's not the fruit of discernment. It's what Francis wanted. They weren't discerning anything in the hall where this was held. And it collects the nucleus of themes generated by the fathers, by the synodal fathers. And we recognize, therefore, the diversity and complementarity of these two texts. Now, you know what's going to happen. It's going to be a post-synodal flurry of documents, probably also an apostolic exhortation, which will pick up on this theme of the incorporation of the Instrumentum Laboris into the final document, and will hold that the two documents are to be read together, 
and then the entire shebang will be adopted as part of the authentic magisterium of Pope Francis. So in that way, LGBT as a concept will be smuggled into the so-called magisterium, and I have to be honest and call it the fake magisterium that has been erected during the five years of this pontificate. And this is what we're dealing with in the Synod. We're dealing with the mechanism by which the things that Francis would like to see in his mad vision of transforming everything in the church according to his wishes is to be implemented. It is a total attack, as we see for the first time, even during the past 50 years of unprecedented crisis, on something as basic as sexual morality. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And regarding the church's teaching on sexual morality, we read the following in paragraph 39. Frequently, in fact, sexual morality is the cause of incomprehension and alienation from the church. Really. Incomprehension. What is so difficult to comprehend about no sexual activity outside of marriage? Why is it so hard to understand thou shalt not commit adultery? They all understand it, and they all know it's wrong. There is no incomprehension. They have invented the idea that there's incomprehension to justify some sort of accommodation of the incomprehending masses and their desire to engage in sexual relations outside of marriage. This is absolutely staggering. We have a pope who is determined to institutionalize the toleration of sexual activity outside of marriage, and not just heterosexual activity, but homosexual activity. And now he's nibbling at the edges of doing this as to sodomy. How do we process this information? Very difficult to do that. So he goes on to say in the final document that it's a cause of incomprehension and alienation from the church inasmuch as it is perceived, meaning the church, as a space of judgment and condemnation in the face of social changes and ways of living, affectivity. Social changes and ways of living affectivity. Another veiled reference to homosexuality. What, what else could be meant by ways of living affectivity? There's only one way to live affectivity that the church approves of, which is conjugal relations within holy matrimony. But we're supposed to acknowledge that now, in today's world, there are different ways of living affectivity. And the multiplication of ethical perspectives. The young show themselves sensible to the value of authenticity and dedication, but are often disoriented. They express particularly an explicit desire in the face of questions relative to the difference between the male and female identity, the reciprocity between men and women, and homosexuality. See, they're creating this idea that there's some sort of confusion, incomprehension and difficulty surrounding such things as the difference between men and women, the relations between men and women, and even homosexuality, as if people don't know that sodomy is wrong. That's one of the sins that cries out to heaven for vengeance. And we're actually told that the church needs to consider the tender concerns of youth because of the multiplication of ethical perspectives. Well, it's just pure moral relativism. Why should the church be catering to youth who are confused by the multiplication of ethical perspectives 
when it is precisely the job of the church to give them the one and only correct ethical perspective, the perspective of our Lord himself, who said whoever marry, puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. The ethical perspective of St. Paul, who says that fornicators will not enter the kingdom of God. St. Paul, who spoke of men with men working that which is filthy. Why will the church not say that this is filthy? Because Francis doesn't wish to say that. Because Francis has surrounded himself with homosexual collaborators. The very head of his household was caught in flagrante delicto in an elevator with a rent boy. He was presented with the evidence of this. He brushed it aside and made this man the head of his household. He's now mired in scandal. Two or three of the cardinals in his council of cardinals are involved in homosexual scandals of their own, either activity of their own or covering it up on a massive scale in their dioceses. So we're looking here about an end game that would result in the destruction of the church's sexual morality in practice. And in principle, of course, it will be affirmed. So what do we make of all this? What do we say about Francis's endgame? Well, we know about the prophecies of Our Lady of Good Success. And we know that this is probably the time she was talking about when she said, unhappy times will come wherein those who should fearlessly defend the rights of the church will instead, blinded despite the light, give their hand to the church's enemies and do their bidding. But when evil seems triumphant and when authority abuses its power, committing all manner of injustice and oppressing the weak, their ruin shall be near. They will fall and crash to the ground. She went on to say, to be delivered from the slavery of these heresies, those whom the merciful love of my son has destined for a restoration will need great willpower, perseverance, courage, and confidence in God to try the faith and trust of these just ones. There will be times when all will seem lost and paralyzed. It will then be the happy beginning of the complete restoration. How many people here were at the Catholic Identity Conference? Anybody here at Lake Garda? Good, I can tell you a story then. A joke, if you will, which I think is instructive for the situation we're in now. So it seems there was a, a great magician in Europe. Let's call him the Great Montini. Now, the Great Montini was in his biggest venue to date. There were 5,000 people there in this great auditorium in one of the European capitals. And he wanted to make this the pinnacle of his career. So he announced to the audience, today, I, the Great Montini, will perform my greatest illusion, the sledgehammer trick. You, young man, you see that sledgehammer on the table. I want you to pick that sledgehammer up and swing it directly at my head. And the man says, I, I'm not going to do that. I'll kill you. I assure you I will not be harmed. I am the great Montini. Do as I say. So the young man, very reluctantly, rather gingerly, takes the sledgehammer and swings it at the great Montini's head with enough force to send him crashing to the ground. And the paramedics come in. They... They barely resuscitate him. They take him off to the hospital. They put him on life support. Maybe he's weaned off life support, but he's in a coma now. The great Montini is in a coma. One month goes by, two months go by, three months go by. The family keeps visiting him. They're beginning to lose hope. 
A year later, they're sitting in the hospital thinking about whether he's ever going to recover and what they should do to arrange for his departure from this earth. And then suddenly, the color begins to return to the great Montini's cheeks and his eyelids begin to flutter. And then without warning, he leaps from his bed and says, Ta-da! <laughs> so, what did we learn from this? We learned a couple of things. The moral for the church today. If you look at the, the reforming popes as the great Montini, beginning with Montini himself, you can say two things about it. You can say, first of all, the magician was deluded. He thought his greatest illusion would wow everybody. and It was a monumental flop, but he refuses to admit it. So when he comes out of his coma, he says, ta-da, to keep the act going. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that the church has, through her human element, self-inflicted upon that element grave wounds upon the ecclesial commonwealth. But the church will have her ta-da moment and will emerge sooner or later from this self-induced coma. This is what Our Lady of Good Success is talking about. And we know that when this finally happens, it is inevitable. We may live to see it. Our Lady under another title will be involved. And I'm talking about Our Lady of Fatima and the triumph of her Immaculate Heart when finally a holy and courageous Pope does what she requested nearly 100 years ago of Sister Lucia of Fatima. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this presentation brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2018, all rights reserved. We invite you to visit our website, www.fatima.org. Immaculate Heart of Mary, ora pro nobis.